Hello, everybody. Drasco here from 10knorm.com, where my main focus is to help guide heart-centered entrepreneurs under 10K months to transcend all of the blind spots that keep them from thinking, feeling, acting, and authentically marketing so they can normalize their own versions of 10K months. And on today's episode, we have another Real Talk segment where I bring in a heart-centered entrepreneur on their way towards their own 10K norm, and we have some real talk about what's currently their biggest challenge towards their 10K norm. And in that conversation, we're gonna explore who they are, why they do what they do, and then live on the call, I get to help them get out of their own way on a challenge that they're currently experiencing towards their 10K norm. And for today's guest, we have Terry Tucker, who has a laundry list of achievements that I'm very happy to dive into. Um, and just as a broad strokes, he's been an NCAA Division I college basketball player, a Citadel cadet, a marketing executive, a hospital administrator, an undercover narcotics investigator, a SWAT team hostage negotiator. And if that wasn't enough, he also takes some time to have... Uh, you know, do some high school basketball coaching, also owns a business, is a motivational speaker and an author, uh, and most recently, a cancer warrior. And uh, in addition to that, he's the author of Sustainable Excellence, which is the 10 principles to living your uncommon and extraordinary life. So Terry, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great, Drasco. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Likewise. I mean, w with an intro like that, I'm like, you know, I feel like you should be, uh, you know, like on <laughs> much, much bigger, uh, you know, platforms, because I mean, that's uh, quite the extraordinary life, you know, that, uh, you know, I think is in many ways, potentially even only beginning. So I'd love to know, you know, I kind of read that as, you know, your intro that you provided and like a highlight bit, but I'd love to know it from, you know, your own words and to give us a little bit more context and all of that. Sure. So I was kind of like most, you know, 18, 19 year old kids when I went to college, really not sure what I wanted to major in, kind of had an idea of what direction I wanted to go with my life. I, I, I always felt my passion, my purpose was, was law enforcement. My, my grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. So was a police officer during prohibition when alcohol was outlawed in the United States during the Great Depression in the 30s um, and during the whole, you know, gangs of, of Chicago shooting the place up with Al Capone and things like that, and was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. And I, my dad remembered the stories my grandmother told about the knock on the door of, you know, Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, your husband's been shot and come with us. So he wanted nothing for me to do with law enforcement whatsoever. So you know, he's like, you're going to go to college, you're going to major in business, you're going to get a job when you get out, you're going to have, you know, get married, have 2.4 kids and live in the suburbs. And, and he had my entire life planned out. But that was the life that he wanted me to lead. And I, if you look at my first two jobs, they are corporate jobs, they're in the marketing department at Wendy's, the hamburger chain, and then uh, as a hospital administrator. And I did those because when I graduated from college, my father had cancer and was dying of cancer. And I didn't want to upset him anymore by saying, gee, dad, I know you're dying, but I'm going to go follow my path. So I sort of joke, yeah, I did what every good son did. I waited until my father passed away and I followed my dreams. So, I, you know, my dad did what he did, not out of spite. It was out of love. It was out of concern for wanting me to have a better life. 
but sometimes you just got to go with what's in your heart, you know, because what's in your heart is usually the reason you were put here in the first place. Wow. I mean, that is, I mean, like the, the story in itself, I'm like, I, you could probably make a movie out of the, the first part of that, you know, with regards to like being, you know, police officer at that time and, you know, having all the stories that come from that that trickle down to you. Um, but certainly I think the second part is an arc that so many of us and it many ways follows my path as well. Like I went to business school as well, realized nine to five wasn't for me. I was, you know, coaching martial arts at that point and I moved into doing that. And then that became the weight loss center that I eventually owned for 10 years. So I, I definitely like, I understand that story. I understand the struggles with it as far as like, you have to go against the grain. You have to go against what your parents wishes and, and, and all of that. So I, I think it's actually, more common than not with people that go down this road. Um, and I think the inspiring piece is like, hey, I'm not alone and be for people that are thinking of making that transition. It's like, yeah, that's actually, like, I think we always have this idea in our head that, oh, these people have it all figured out, but then it's like, no, they're actually kind of struggling with the same stuff that you're struggling with. <laughs> so what I'd love for you to expand on is that was kind of how you got into following your own path to law enforcement. And then what about the kind of second arc of that story with regards to, you know, getting into business and all of the other bits that came after that? So that was really, um, again, sort of going back to when my wife married me, I was a suit and tie eight to five Monday through Friday hospital administrator. And we got married and moved to California. And just by chance, I happened to come across a uh, we were living in Santa Barbara, uh, um, an advertisement that came in the mail for Santa Barbara City College and the, and the courses they offered. And one of the courses was um, if you completed it, you could apply to be a reserve police officer with any agency within the state of California. And so, you know, one night at dinner, you can imagine how this conversation is. It's like, hey, hon, I'd like to take this entirely divergent path to do law enforcement and, and sort of, you know, tap my foot in the water. Let's see how this goes. And she was incredibly supportive of, of me of doing it. I did it. I loved it. She used to say that, you know, you'd work all week at your job and then Friday night, you'd come home, put on your uniform, go to roll call, work all night, come home with no sleep Saturday morning, exhausted, but with this great big smile on your face. And she said, I knew that was what you were supposed to do. So when we moved, to Cincinnati, Ohio, after our daughter was born, and I said, I want to do this full time. She was very supportive, but she's the primary breadwinner. And I, I've always said that, you know, the, the, three, the three F's in my life, faith, family, and friends have really kind of sustained me. And when she lost her job in Cincinnati, and we had to move to Texas, I, I had to get out of law enforcement. And that's where, okay, I started my own business. You know, I watched people who were cops for 35, 40 years, and their identity was tied to that gun and that badge. That's who they were. I knew that's not who I was. It was my passion. It was my purpose. It was my why, but it wasn't who I was. I could do more. And so I started a school security consulting business with both of my brothers are in education uh, in Chicago and my law enforcement background. And so I helped schools become safer and wrote their policies and procedures and trained their their staff and things like that. So yeah, I, I would have liked to have stayed as a policeman, but this was something else that I could do. 
and my wife supported me and my my dream and I wanted to support her and our family by you know having to move to another state and and start over so that's kind of how all that came about and then I was also able to coach uh, girls basketball I, I played college basketball our daughter played uh, college basketball at the Air Force Academy here in the United States and and I coached her in high school so it was nice to be your own boss you know you could kind of ramp up your business in the off season and then kind of ramp it back during basketball season. And I could concentrate on that. So there were, there were some definitely positive parts of starting your own business, being your own boss. Absolutely. And what I hear when you kind of dive into that part of the story is, you know, it might not necessarily have been law enforcement that was like the end goal or the end of the road or however you want to call it but it just like I, I feel like there's a string amongst all of the choices and the things that lit you up was this element of service right like I want to be of service to the basketball team I want to be of service to the community I want to be of service to you know something more than just like a corporate job or, or whatever the case might be so I'm just curious from your point of view like does that resonate yeah it it, it really does I mean I, I always when people ask me about, especially in today's day and age, you know, I'd like to get into law enforcement. I said, well, here's three things to consider. Number one, you're going to make less money than a plumber. Number two, nobody's going to want you around. And number three, everybody's going to lie to you. So if you can imagine if we all went to work and, you know, we're, we're making less money than a plumber, nobody wants us at our job. I don't, I don't want you around. Whenever a policeman's there, it's never a good thing, whether we're pulling you over to give you a ticket on a traffic stop or we're knocking on your door to tell you to call the hospital because grandmother just passed away. It's never a good thing. People don't want the police there. And then finally, they lied to us. People lied to us all the time. They want their story to be the one we believe. So we'll take the other person to jail. So you have to go into that job um, wanting to make a difference, wanting to serve your community, because it's not something you can sustain if you if you realize that those are the that's your day every day, you know, people lie to you, they don't want you around. And really, you're not making a whole lot of money. Not that you go into that shop to make money, you, you know, that, that you don't. So I think it's real important. We used to always say in law enforcement that there were three types of people. There were the, the sheep, there were the wolves, and there were the sheepdogs. You know, the sheep were the, the citizens, the, the wolves were the bad guys, and the sheepdogs were the police. And that's kind of how we portrayed ourselves as being the protectors. And that's that's really kind of what I've been my whole life. I've, I wanted to serve. I wanted to protect. I wanted to, to help people out. And and I think I've done that for most of my life. Uh, 100%. I mean, obviously, I, I don't know you very much, but I can feel the passion that, that comes out of it. And a, a good friend of mine, he's also, he's, he's an active police officer right now. And, and I hear the stories every day of, you know, what he deals with and he works in mental health as well. So it's like, you know, I know like cops and stuff get a bad rep like at, at this like time, but it's like you guys deal with the, you know, 1% of the population that's like the worst of the worst. And that is like your, your, your day to day. Right. And it's the, the toll it takes to have to go back to that every single day when it's like your Tuesdays is like somebody else's nightmare or what movies are made out of. It's just like, yeah, it's like a Tuesday. Right. Um, you know, I just want to kind of highlight, like, I, I respect that so much. And I agree with you just from how he speaks about it in similar ways to, to you and how he's also rooted in the service aspect. And he also likes to teach. I'm like, there is zero chance 
like that anybody who's in it for any other reason other than that is going to stay in that job because it, I mean it just like it's like a test every single day of do you want to keep being at service and are the bigger reasons than the BS you deal with every day present for for you to be there so I'm just curious like on, on your point of view like how that lands for you it, it is and you know it, it's funny because having been in business before I went into law enforcement and then being in business again you know there was the 80 20 rule 80 percent of your business came from 20 percent of your customers well in all honesty that was the same way in law enforcement you know 80 percent of the crime was committed by 20 percent of the people and if you were a good beat officer you know you, the area that you patrolled what was called a beat if, if you were a good beat officer i mean you knew who the bad guys were not only did you know who they were you knew where they lived you knew where their mothers lived you knew where their baby mamas lived you i, I mean you knew that as a police officer so that that was absolutely you know the, the 80 20 rule applied with that and the other thing i think that was really important for us as as law enforcement officers to keep in mind was you know i may pull you over in a car and for you, that may be the most stressful thing that happens to you all year. For me, it's the third traffic stop of the day, and it's just part of my job. So it, it is, it's incredibly stressful on people to have to deal with any first responders, whether it's police, fire, EMS, whoever it is. But that was something we had to remember. And, you know, when your entire day is spent dealing with, like you say, people who you know, they don't respect you, they're spitting at you, they're calling your names, they're doing all kinds of stuff. You know, you have to realize that this is something that's bigger than you. And you're right, every day you got to ask that question, is this worth me going out there to do that? Is it worth it to my family? And, and that's where I think I go back to the three S, faith, family, and friends. Those were the things that kept me grounded. You know, do I know police officers that I work with who went out and, you know, hit the bottle too much or got involved in drugs. Or, I mean, I worked with a couple of people that have actually ended their lives because the stress was too much. For me, it was, no, I don't want to go to the bar with you after work. I want to go home and be with my family because that's what grounds me. And that's what keeps me real or basically keeps things in perspective for me to realize that everybody I come in contact with in this world is not a criminal. You know, that the vast majority of people are good, decent, hardworking, honest human beings who just want the best for their family, their community and their country. And when you realize that, you, you kind of keep that in perspective and realize, no, everybody is not a jerk. Everybody is not a criminal. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think one of the things that always made it real for me in the conversations with my friend as well, it's like, yeah, you have these criminals or whatever you want to call that that you deal like with and yeah they, they are throwing everything back your way like you are the the reason everything's wrong they hate you right like you're the scapegoat for all of the issues and I mean technically we all do that just in different ways and, and in different uh magnitudes but I think uh with regards to like having to go back to that um like every single day that there is this rooting of you know, like those people didn't just come out of the womb that way, right? Like it's just when you then begin to explore their stories of like what they had to go through and it's kind of like inevitable that they ended up where they ended up. Um, there is this, you know, aspect, at least from my perspective of like sympathy and understanding of, you know, who they are. Now that obviously doesn't excuse, you know, the majority of things that they do and there are consequences for those things, but from just listening to him talk and, you know, his service 
perspective does allow him to see the other uh, side of those things. It's like, you know, there's a part of you that wants these people out and not being a menace to society, but there's also part of you that's just like, these people actually like need help. Like I, I know they're acting out and, and I know the acting out is dangerous and, and it's not excusable, but it's like, you know, it, it's, it's a hard spot I think to be in where you want to help, but you also want to protect yourself and others. Um, so again, I'm just curious about your perspective on how that lands. Yeah, there, there's definitely, I, when you were talking, I, I was thinking about, <clears throat> you know, the, where, where we worked in Cincinnati, Ohio, they, they had a curfew uh, for, for our uh, juveniles. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, you know, I can remember picking up my partner and I picking up a 13 year old kid at three o'clock in the morning, you know, in, in October on a school night and taking that child home because that's what we did with them. And then we, we would cite the parents to go to court and realize that that child lived with their 80 year old grandmother who went to bed at six o'clock. Their dad was in prison. Their mother was, and pardon my use of this word, I'll just say was on crack. And you, 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 would, you would walk away, I mean, having to cite grandmother because she, she was the adult in the house and realizing that that kid doesn't stand a chance, you know, and, unless somebody gets a hold of them. And, you know, you realize very quickly as a policeman that, you know, you keep getting called to these problems and you're expected to solve them in 20 minutes or 30 minutes or, or as quickly as you possibly can because there's runs holding for you to take care of. But, but those problems have been manifesting themselves for, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And here you're, you're going to fix it in, in 20 minutes. That's just simply not realistic. I mean, it's it kind of the old finger in the dike. You know, you put your finger in it. Well, there's a hole over. Now I've got to put it in it. And eventually you run out of fingers and you do the best you can with what you have. But if it was easy, if there was a simple solution, it would have come up by now. There, there just isn't a simple solution to this. And, and really, the police are kind of that last bastion of protection between criminals and chaos, you know, of letting people run wild and do whatever they want. And you, you do the best you can with what you have, and you hope it's enough that night. Yeah, 100%. <clears throat> I, I agree with that. Again, I, I've seen it from, you know, some of the other side and you know, obviously there's many people that do a much better job than, than me to like explore that area. Um, what I just would want to kind of reflect back and bring it back to the podcast is one of the things I often talk about here is, you know, we seldom have business problems. We have, uh, so we seldom have business problems more so than we have personal problems that show up in our business, right? Like, and even when I hear you speak, it's kind of like the same thing. Like these, these people don't necessarily have the quote unquote, crack problem, the crime problem, et cetera. That is the consequence. That is the front facing aspect that, you know, we need to regulate so that it doesn't seep into day to day life. But it's like the systemic bit behind that is the real issue of which, like you said, the 20 minutes you spend with them, there's no way it's ever going to get solved. Um, and I think it's it's ultimately a very human thing. And, you know, I explore it in my program and in the podcast from the perspective of business, but it's essentially the same thing. It's where are we lapsing in the humaning of this experience that ultimately has these trickle down effects uh, and consequences, right? So even more fundamentally, like what are the thoughts that we either are thinking or have been taught to us to think that lead to the emotions that 
lead to the actions that we ultimately do and create the consequences and results of everything around us. So um, with that segue, again, I just want to bring it back to you as the expert on here, like how does that reflect uh, to you and, and what's your point of view on that? Yeah, that's, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure I know how to answer that. You, you, you know, I mean, you, you it, it is societal. I, I, I mean, it is, you, you, you want, you know, you, you want what's best for, you know, the, I guess the thing I always remembered, especially when dealing with criminals, suspects, whatever you wanted to call them, is there was always somebody somewhere that loved that person. I don't care how bad they were. I don't care how, you know, messed up they were, how much on dope they were and stuff like that. I, I have a high school friend who's um, married to a woman and, and it's their second marriage and, and her daughter is a crackhead and, and literally has come to their house when they've not been home and stolen from them and and have told their, her friends that, hey, go, you know, go to my parents' house and steal from them and things like that. And the thing you have to remember is that's still a human being. You, you know, you don't want to be stolen, you know, have things that you've worked hard for taken from you, but that's still a human being. And, and as, as a parent, I mean, I have a daughter, thank God, who is, is not in that situation. But that's the, the thing I always used to do when I would interview suspects or when I would fill out an arrest report. I always wanted to know about that. You know, tell me about your goals. Tell me about your dreams. Tell me about your aspirations. And the sad part of that was that most young people I encountered, you know, in their, in their teens, in their 20s, they didn't have any goals. They didn't have any aspirations. They all thought they were going to be dead by the time they were 30. So it's like, hey, let's live fast now do as much as we possibly can, have as whatever the consequences of our actions, it didn't matter who got involved or who got hurt, we were going to live fast because we were going to die young. And, and when you think about that, when kids are thinking, you know, I'm, I, I have no life. I, I mean, you know, even if you died in your 30s, I mean, you, you had another 40 years potentially of life, of life expectancy that you could have done things. And, and the other thing that I always thought about some of these, these guys that were very, very sophisticated in their criminal activity was, boy, if you would have taken that brain power and flipped it into something that was productive and was good, you could, you could have been a millionaire. I mean, you are a really smart individual, but you're running dope out here on the corner, you know, at three o'clock in the morning and stuff like that. That That's what you want your life to be about. But that's all they know. You know, if, if mom and dad aren't around, if they don't have the family structure or, or they, they don't go to church or have it, they don't have any kind of a structure that allows them to be productive in life. So what do they do? They gravitate to the first thing that gives them that. And that's usually a gang or a group of people. Hey, we're going to get together. We can make a lot of money really fast. Yes, you can. But can you imagine spending your entire life looking over your shoulder thinking either A, the police are coming for me or B, the rival down, you know, the block is coming from me. That's that's a, that's not a way to live. That's not a way to run a business. I, I mean, and, and I always say this because, as you, you said, I, I was an undercover narcotics investigator. I'm six foot eight inches tall. So I, I'm, not, I'm not exactly a small man. And people were like, well, how did you do that? And I used to say that industry, and it is an industry, is motivated by greed. And as long as you have money, you'll find somebody to sell you drugs. 
that's how I was able to do that for, I was an undercover cop for three and a half years. Wow. I mean, I mean, just even that last piece that you say, yeah, six, eight, I mean, you, you stand out in like everywhere, essentially, right? <laughs> just like in terms of keeping a low profile, I, I think it's like a, a completely different challenge to, to do it that way. So I think, you know, kudos is in order right. uh, in that regard. And what I think I just want to reflect back and we kind of bring it back to the, the main themes here, but and again, it comes back to this, like, I, you know, it's like that Zen quote of like, once you know the way you see the way everywhere in the sense of like everything that you're describing, it's in this context that obviously I have no direct experience in yet. I see, you know, the principles that, you know, I try to live by and, and teach and, and, and even teach in others. It's just like they manifest in different ways and in different intensities and in different magnitudes. So it, it just looks different on the end. But sure. while you were speaking with regards to that, you know, like these individuals that they have no uh, perspective on what's possible outside of like this very myopic view of like their life. Um, and I, I just, I know this story, I, I can't exactly verify like the, the source or whatever, but the story goes like they did research or, you know, some of these sociologists, et cetera, would go out into like the deep, deep jungles of like the Amazon, right? So like, everything you're just surrounded by trees maybe some rivers but like you, you know you've never seen anything from the outside world and one of the things that they found was they would like once they could interact with them or learn a bit of their language or whatever they would do these uh they, they would realize that they had no concept for blue right and they would like talk to them and they would just realize like that they, they things that they're pointing to how they're saying it it's like they don't understand blue and you're like, well, well, how do they not understand blue? And it turns out that they would do like simple tests of like, you know, organize these marbles by like color. And, and they would recognize blue, but they would just like call it something different or they, they would describe it differently. And what they realized was that is because they were so deep in the jungle, they never really had a concept for blue because they never saw like water, like out in the open where it's blue or like a blue sky everything was kind of like greenish and murky and like rivery, right? And it, it just kind of bogs the mind because blue is something that we learn from childhood. But if you think about it, if you have no concept or word of blue, so many other things just kind of disappear or take on a completely different interpretation, even though they're in front of you, right? So it, it just kind of reminded me of that, where it's like, we have these narratives, we have these set points that if we never question them, or we never have the reflection back to question them, then we don't even know what's possible, right? And that's kind of one of the reasons why I started 10K Norm as the accompanying podcast to the program. It's that if you're not looking in the right place and in the right place, in this sense, I identify as like, why am I not doing the things I know I can be doing or should be doing? Then it's like, you don't even have, like you, you don't even know if you're playing the right game to actually move towards you know, where you want to go. So in that, uh, you know, inspiration and segue, I'd love to kind of dive more into, so what is it that you're currently doing right now? Like, what's your current business? I'd love to know more about that. Yeah, I, I mean, really, it seems like my current business is podcasts. I, I, I was a, a motivational speaker. I, I've had a, a nine-year battle with cancer. Um, so in 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic, I 
had an undiagnosed tumor in my ankle that grew large enough that it, it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And my only recourse was the amputation of my leg. I mean, the bone wasn't going to heal on its own. It was full of cancer. So I added my leg amputated above the knee. And I also found out I had tumors in my lungs as, as a result of, of the cancer metastasizing. So I am in a situation now where I am on a clinical trial of a, of a drug to help for the tumors. So for one week, I'm pretty much out of commission. I'm at the hospital every day getting this drug. And then for two weeks, I am supposed to heal. And my wife and I kind of have a, an ongoing quote unquote battle of what you do in that time. I have spent that time being guests on podcasts and trying to get the mess, my message out. What, what is your purpose now? I, I'd like to put as much goodness, love, positivity, peace back into the world as I can. But my wife is like, no, you need time to rest. You need time to heal. You need time for your blood counts to come back. But, you know, I always kind of say, well, you know, I get plenty of rest when I'm dead. So I, I might as well do this now and, and, and try to do that to the best of my ability. And, she, you know, she's kind of limited me to two podcasts a day. Oh, I mean, just for today, I, I mean, you're number two of three. So, I mean, some days there's four and five, but I get energized from that. So that's, that's kind of what I'm spending my time doing. I wrote a book um, actually during the time I was healing from my, uh, my, my leg amputation to the time I started chemotherapy. And I'm thinking about another book. Um, I think my first book, is, as you mentioned, was more about success, what, what we do to be successful in life. And I think my next book, I think I want to use, use it for a platform to, you, to focus on another word, and that's significance. You know, success is what we do. We are significant as, you know, a podcaster or a coach or, you know, a business person. Significance is what we do for other people. And I think it can be both. I think it can be successful and significant, but I'd like a second book to be about significance. So that's kind of that's kind of where I am right now and, and kind of what I'm doing. I am somewhat physically limited on what I can do, uh, but it would certainly also be fun to get out there and and to talk again. But I have physical limitations. I'm in a wheelchair and things that I, I didn't have before the pandemic started. So but you know what? Those are just obstacles. I'll, I'll figure out a way to overcome that stuff. I love it. And I love the fact that you know, this is not going to be like a typical like episode that, that I've normally done, which is cool. Like I said, I, I've always, you know, people ask and, you know, I think you kind of brought this up too. It's like, okay, well, you know, what, what am I going to talk about? Is there anything particular I say? I'm like, I always like the free flowing nature of it because I think what comes up is exactly what needs to come up. So the fact this isn't typical, it's actually exciting on my end because I'm like, okay, let, let's see uh, where, where we can like take this uh but just as like a an aside i mean <laughs> as soon as you said like okay I, i'm like in a wheelchair and i have limitations i'm like do they make wheelchairs for people that are six eight like is that a custom like wheelchair? it is a custom it is. Okay. <laughs> honestly yeah they measure everything out and you have a custom wheelchair <laughs> yeah like I, i've been in like I, when i broke my leg i've been in a wheelchair and i was like this is pretty tight and, and i'm six one imagine if you're six, eight, I'm like, <laughs> this is like a completely different problem. So anyway, that, that's just an aside. Um, okay. So what I would love to do then, if, if you're open to it, like one of the things that I know is, is, is my gift. And one of the things that I'm really good at helping other individuals is kind of, you know, 
see where certain narratives that they might hold might be holding them back or might be a blind spot to certain things. Um, that's what I do in my programs. It's a lot of where like the really good episodes have come out of this particular podcast. So just out of curiosity, are you open to exploring that piece or do you have some other idea of kind of where you would want to take this? No, sure. I, I, I am more than happy to do that. I, you know, I find myself a lot of times sort of reversing roles with you, with, with people that I'm, I, I'm in a, in all honesty, there were seven of us that started this clinical trial as of last week, I'm the last person standing. So everybody else is either out of the trial or no longer with us. So, you know, you, I, I have found myself where these people are just, and, and, and you, you know, they're, they're just, they're just negative drains on you. You know, they suck all the positive, you know, and it's like, oh my God, yeah, this sucks, but let's find something good in this. You know, Hey, you're alive today. You're on this side of the dirt, which beats the heck out of, you know, of what a lot of other people experience. Let's find something positive, but sure. I'll be open. I'll go down any road, any rabbit hole you'd like. Awesome. Okay, perfect. So I guess the first thing that popped into me when you mentioned that was like, yeah, I am, uh, you know, the, the, the last person standing, I am so like, I'm looking for the positive in it. And that hundred percent makes sense to me. Cause if you had not told me your story, I would have never like even thought that you were had cancer. Like I've, I've known people that have gone down that road. I know like the cloud that looms over them. So I can 100% see that. So what I'm curious about is, you know, you have this sentiment of, I just want to spread good and positivity out into the world while I'm still here. I want to get as many podcasts as possible, kind of, you know, whatever, I'll, I'll rest when I can, but like, I, I just want to get that out there. It's, it's important. And I want to stay as positive as I possibly can. So from that stage, when you look at yourself right now, what's kind of the most relevant thing that, uh, let's start with with what's keeping you forward, keeping you going forward? I, I, I totally believe it, it's a combination of what I call my four truths, which are four things that I've really kind of developed as a mindset over these last nine years. And the, the faith, family, and friends portion of it. I, I, and and I'll, I'll give you the four truths real quick. They're just one sentence. The first one is control your mind or it will control you. The second one is embrace the pain and the difficulty we all experience in life and use that to make you a stronger and more determined individual. The third one is more of a legacy truth, which is what we leave behind is what we weave in the hearts of other people. And the fourth one is, as long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. So I, I use those. I, I, I mean, people have asked me, I had a nurse ask me, you know, what was it like to have your foot amputated? That, that, was, that was first before the leg. The foot was amputated and then your leg amputated. And I told her, I said, it, it wasn't easy. I, I mean, I don't mean to sit here and, and have your audience or, or anybody think that, you know, I wear a big S on my chest and I have a cape. I, I don't. I have bad days. I cry. I get down. I get depressed. You know, but there's an old Japanese saying that said, you know, pain is inevitable. We're all going to experience pain in our lives. And, and it doesn't have to be cancer pain like mine. It could be, you know, you flunk a test at school or you break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or you don't get the promotion at work that, that you've expected. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. 
Suffering is what you do with that pain. Do you wallow in it and get out in the muck and the gunk and feel sorry for yourself and want others to feel sorry for you? Or do you use it to make you stronger, to make you tougher, to make you more determined? And I've just found a way, you know, I mean, our brains are hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure. So, you know, to most people, pain, no, get away from it. I go, I just do the opposite. I just take it, flip it inside, use it as energy, burn it as fuel to make me stronger, to make me tougher, to make me more determined. Is it easy? No. Do I have bad days? Absolutely. I just don't let those, I just don't stay in that bad day. That, that's how I keep trying to move forward every day. Love it. It's like the anchors that keep me forward, regardless of what the circumstances of my life actually are. So that to me explains exactly, okay, this is how I get through day to day. This is how I handle pain and toughness and, and the things that are thrown in front of me. And what I'm curious to know is that energy that that's generated as like from that springboard, where is it leading to? That's a great question. Where is it leading to? Um, I hope it's leading kind of back to our initial conversation when we started this podcast, you know, my purpose of service, of, of being of service to other people. And, you know, I, I think in all honesty, that's kind of our, I believe that's all of our purpose in life. And, and you know, we tend to feel that especially today, you know, it's all about me, what, you know, what's in it for me. And one of the things that I learned as a, as a college basketball player, certainly as a basketball player playing team sports my whole life was if I didn't hold up my end of the bargain, if I didn't do my job, I didn't just let myself down. I let my teammates down. I let my coaches down. I let, I let my, my parents down, my fans down and things like that. And I think the thing to remember is, the biggest team game that we all play is the game of life. And if, if we tend to think of ourselves as cordoned off as it's all about me, it's, it's not about you. It's about us. It's about us together finding our purpose in life and living it. And, and if we do that, you realize that, hey, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, somebody else gets let down and somebody else gets let down and somebody else gets let down. Not, hey, it's all about me, the heck with everybody else. That attitude is like, yeah, screw the rest of you people. I, I just care about me. I I've just never been like that. And I think, I think we would get a lot farther as a society if we cared more about each other and less about ourselves. 100%. I, I mean, I, I think it was the first thing I picked up on when I said like the weavings part of your story is like the service. So hundred percent, I can see that happening. You know, I don't want to let anybody down. Right. I, I think it should be, we, not just me, right. Like the, the, the collective needs to do better. So we need to anchor ourselves into it. And I think it's extremely real everything you're doing right now and what you've done before. And while you were talking, I was just taking some notes on, you know, you said, okay, so like right now that energy is being led towards being of service to others uh, ensuring that the way I continue to live, just like I did on the basketball court is like not letting others down. A, a big part of like life is like you said, you have the, the, the three F's that, that drive it. And one of them is family or two of family and friends. 
right? So it's again about the us and, and enhancing the us that creates life. Um, and in doing that, I, I want to ensure that I never let somebody else down. So just before I continue, there is like, do you feel like that's accurate with regards to what you've said? I, I think that's accurate. I, I mean, I guess I would add that understanding that I will let people down, that, that I, am, I am not perfect. As I said, I, do I have bad days? Yeah. I, I mean, the last time I was in treatment, I found myself on a Wednesday afternoon, shaking, throwing up, doing all this kind of, in a dark room, just crying, you know, and, it, and, and the, one of the greatest things is that I just had a nurse come in and put her arm around. Me. She didn't say anything. She didn't do, you know, just put your arm around somebody. And I was, oh, okay, all right, it's all I needed. I just needed that little bit of, all right, I'm back. I'm good. We're ready to attack it. So, I, you know, I think everybody has their breaking point. And I don't want people to think that I've got this all figured out. I, I, I don't. I, I have those bad days. And I think eventually there'll come a point where I'll just be enough. I, I'm done with this. I'm not there yet. I mean, maybe it'll be tomorrow. Maybe it'll be five years from now. But I think we all have that breaking point and it's okay. It's okay to have that breaking point. It's okay to realize that you're not superhuman. You're just doing the best you can. A hundred percent. I agree. I think that is a myth that, that it's like we're infallible and <clears throat> we never have that, that breaking point. So a hundred percent agree with you on that. And just to kind of stay on the aspect of, cause I know, I know this happens quite a bit and, and I have the same thing with, with my, um, friends also a cop like I have these similar conversations where it's the service orientation and everybody uh you know the collective needs to do better comes up quite a bit often so I'm just curious um so this aspect of okay I like being of service to others so <clears throat> if I couldn't be of service to others then fill in the blank I couldn't be of service to others, then I'd still be a service to myself. Okay, got it. And in what ways? I guess just by leading the life that I feel I'm supposed to lead. That the you know, again, you know, faith, family, and friends. Faith is is a big part of that for me, which. I feel I have done in my life. I feel I have found my purpose in life and I have lived it, which for me makes death, which is probably right around the corner for me, a whole lot less scary. It, it gives me a whole lot more peace. So it, it's, again, yes, I, I, I will live my life the way I feel I should live it. And if people can look at that and say, I want to be like that, I want to live like that, that's fine. If they don't, that's fine too. This is why I, this is the where I feel I should be living my life and how I should be living my life because I think there's somebody, you know, I always say, I, I don't worry about when I die because that's way above my pay grade. Well, the person who's way above my pay grade, I think wants me to live this life that way. Got it. So there's this element <clears throat> of surrender in whatever is the larger kind of plan. I'm whatever you believe that to be, exactly. For it. me, it's God. For other people, maybe something else. But for me, that's I, I think the ultimate. That's where I'm. That's where I want to go. That's where I want to get back to. Got it. Okay. And when you say I want to get back to that, is it in terms of like like I guess you just elaborate on, on that piece? 
I, I think we were, and I, this sort of blows me away when I kind of, you know, expound on this, that if you believe, and I do, that we were created in the image and likeness of God, if we were created in love, if God is love, not God wants us to be in love, but God is love, then, you know, all the the power, the money, the influence that, that we have, that we want to accumulate in life to be successful, none of that really matters if you think that you can't take that with you when you go. I mean, I'm not taking, if I have a million dollars, I'm not taking that with me after I die. But what I am taking with me is the love that I have in my heart, the love that people have for me and that I have for other people. And if you think about a God who knew all the dumb, stupid, crazy, sinful things that we were going to do in life, and yet still loved us enough to put us on the face of this earth to try to make his world a better place, then taking that love back to him is what I mean by, you know, I, I want to like, hey, I did the best I could with what you got. I know it's, it's never going to live up to your high standards, but I did the best. I'd like to come back to that God that created me in love. Got it. So there is the surrender to kind of this divine love. And I want to be of service to that as much as I possibly can right here. And now there is the love for community and the, and the friends and family aspect that's around us. I think that's very palpable. I think anybody listening to this can can just, even in the voice, even they're watching the video, just feel the love you have for that. And what I'm curious is, is that level of love for God and others reflective of love for self? I think so. Yeah, I, 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 I think I, you know, I, I mean, there's that old Winston Churchill quote that says, you know, when you're going through hell, keep going. I, I, I think if you knew my entire story and everything that I've been through, just with the little that you know, I think most people would say, yeah, for the last nine years, you've been going through hell. So do I quit? Do I give up? Do I give in? You know, it kind of goes back to that pain analogy. You know, someday my pain is going to end. It may end through surgery. It may end through medication. Quite frankly, it may end when I die. But if I quit, if I give up, if I give in to that pain, I will always have pain in my life. Got it. And yeah, I mean, that, just even hearing you speak it is so inspirational on the uh in the opposite end and i guess one other thing i would just want to reflect back to get your take on is so i have this love and surrender to divine love right and and, and where that leads me to to be of service i have the love of service for others to ensure that that happens them melded together i believe reflects the love that i have internally for myself so I'm curious, have you ever, I mean, considered or thought about or, or, or looked at, can I take that love and think about healing out of this versus just surviving the pain? I mean, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think about healing every day. I, I, and I think um, I pray, you know, that's probably, you know, some people meditate, I pray for at least an hour every day. I, I, and I'd, I'd be lying if I said I didn't pray for myself. I do. I ask for that miracle of healing. And 
a, a few months ago, my, my oncologist actually showed me the CAT scan photos of my lungs back in 2020 when I had my leg amputated and I found the tumors in my lung. And I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a doctor. I have really no medical background whatsoever, but I was able to kind of look at that. And, and I said to him, how was I alive? And he was like, I have no idea. And you look at those scans today after, you know, the however many months, many months that I've been on either chemotherapy or the clinical trial drug, and there has been healing. There hasn't been, you know, you are, you don't, you're cancer free, but there has been some form of healing. So, and again, that's why I kind of look at, okay, yeah, should have been dead there. No idea why, how I was able to still breathe in. And I have no idea because I remember how hard it was to breathe back then. And now you, like you said, you look at me, you would never know that I had cancer. You would never, I mean, obviously I stood up on my one leg and things like that. You would know that there were some issues, but there is, there has been healing, which says to me, the divine, my God has said, you know what, not done with you yet. I'm, you know, I'm going to give you some more time. I'm going to heal you to a point. And, and I've, I've also been asked the question, do you blame God? Do you blame God that you got cancer? And no, I said, no. You know, I mean, I don't think God got up on a Tuesday morning, checked his to-do list and said, Terry Tucker, cancer. I, I, no, I don't think that's happened. But God, I feel, has given me the strength to get through these last nine years and all the things that have happened with it. Yeah, um, I, I think for me, what's coming out is like, a, I think I feel like I'm getting more benefit out of the, 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 this actual episode than, than you because I, and I'll reflect back to you kind of what I see, like, for me, what stands out is you reflecting back to me, the living embodiment of the principles that you spoke about at the beginning, right? Like, I think that last part was, was a complete embodiment of faith. Right. I, I always like the definition of faith that I heard from Jesse Elder, where it's like the intersection of desire and expectation. Right. So it's like I, I have this desire, obviously, to to heal. And I have the expectation that it's happening and I see the evidence is moving in the right direction from my vantage point and belief in God and and, and where, you know, the, the plans are for me to go there. So I'm staying rooted in my business, which is you know, I, I'm here to be of service because I'm getting this gift to, to, to live on. And the resiliency that comes from that higher purpose, like almost going back to what we spoke about near the beginning, where it's like, you know, th this job of policing has so much crap involved into it that unless I stay rooted, I, I have faith in the higher reasons for doing this, I'm not going to survive it. So when I listen to, you know, your story and you speak, it just reinforces to me, like, Here's somebody, you know, in the dire most circumstances, living the principles. And it's just always cool to be, you know, in that energy, in that presence and be like, yeah, like this is exactly the, the, the path. This is what it looks like. This is what not just the confidence, but the competence and the self-assuredness that comes from embodying those things uh, despite the circumstance looks like. So from my vantage point, I want to thank you for, for, you know, coming on and bringing a different uh, flavor to this whole thing. Cause it's been very uh, impactful on, on, on the receiving end on, on my end. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me on. Cause it's, you know, again, understanding what my purpose is, 
you and I having a conversation when somebody listens to this, are we going to make a difference in their life that we have no idea who that's who that person is? I think we are. And, and that's that's the great thing about what what you do and, and kind of what I do, because, it, you know, if you realize I, I had a, I had a nurse actually. I'll, I know you run out of time. A quick story. I had, I had a nurse recently who came to me and said, you know, when I first met her, she was in training in, in our unit, in the infusion unit. And several months later, she was taking care of me on her own. And, and she said, when I first met you, I was going to give up nursing. I, I, she's about 25 years old. She said, I had a good friend that died. I was in a very dark place. I talked to my mom and dad. I was going to quit nursing, and go to work for Amazon. And she said, then I met you. And I saw how you live your life. I saw what you go through every day. And yet you keep coming back. And she said, and I knew I was where I was supposed to be. Now, if she had never told me that story, I would have had no idea that my life had an impact on her. Who out there is looking at you, is looking at me, that we have no idea who they are, but they're watching how we conduct ourselves. They're watching how we live our life. And we're saying, you know, I want to be like Drasco. I want to be like Terry. I want to be like Bob. And, and I think that's another part of the bigger picture of realizing that it's just not about you. Your life, whether you know it or not, is impacting somebody else. Yeah, like those ripples, they don't have to be waves to actually count, right? Right. If, if it's the, the one ripple that does something to somebody else, like that's enough. And I think it's just the, our ego being like, no, but if it's not like a stage of millions, then it's useless where it's <laughs> right. like it wasn't useless for that nurse that uh you know stayed in her vocation of choice so yeah i mean it's certainly happening today again so thank you very much um i I appreciate your story and and your willingness to you know go through experiences like this to just uh create those ripples so you know my my appreciation to you uh for from this end and uh just to kind of cap it off uh, if there's anything else you wish to share with you know me and everybody else, by all means, the floor is yours. And uh, if there's any way for people to get in contact with you, or who should get in contact with you, the floor is absolutely yours for any of those pieces. Sure. I'll, I'll leave you with one story. But if you want to get in contact with me, I have a blog. It's called Motivational Check. So motivationalcheck.com. I put up a, a daily thought for the day and a Monday morning motivational message and things like that. Let me end with this with this story. I've always been a, a, a big fan of Westerns growing up. My mom and dad used to let me stay up and watch, you know, Gunsmoke and, and Wild Wild West and things like that. 1993, the movie Tombstone came out. You, you may have seen it. Uh, it starred Val Kilmer as a man by the name of John Doc Holliday and, and uh, Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, Wyatt Earp and, and Doc Holliday were two living, breathing human beings that actually walked on the face of the earth. They're not made up characters for the movie. And in this part of the movie, well, they called Doc Doc because he was a dentist by trade, but pretty much he was a a gunslinger and a card shark. And Wyatt had been a lawman his entire life. And yet these two men from entirely divergent backgrounds formed this very close friendship. And at the very end of the movie, Doc is dying at a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live. And the real Doc Holliday died in that sanitarium and he's buried in the cemetery there. And Wyatt, at this point in his life, is destitute. There's no money, he has no job, he has no prospects for a job. So every day he comes to play cards with Doc and the two men pass the time that way. And in this scene, they're talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, I was in love with my cousin when I was young and she joined a convent over the affair, but she's all I ever wanted. And then Doc looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? 
And Wyatt kind of nonchalantly says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal, there's just life. And get on with living yours. You and I probably know people who are sitting back and saying, you know, if this happens, then I'll have a normal life. If that happens, then I'll have a successful life. If this happens, then I'll be influential. Don't wait. Don't wait on your life to find you. Go out there, find the reason you were put on the face of this earth and live it. Because when you do, at the end of your life, you'll be so much more happier and so much more at peace. And I'll end it at that. I mean, probably the best ending I've had on, on the podcast so far. So thank you very much. Uh, yeah, couldn't agree more. And I'm not going to say anything else that's perfectly said. So thank you very much for uh, doing this. It was an absolute pleasure on my end. And uh, for everybody else, we'll, uh, we'll see you on the next one.